As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Okay, we are continuing our episode on Medgar Evers. And this is part two, so if you're listening to this right now and you're like, part two, what? Well, where was part one? Part one was last week, so make sure you go listen to that before you commit to listening to this entire episode. And we left off with a teaser about something with Medgar and the NAACP, so I'm excited about that. But Garen, can you do a, maybe a real quick recap, and then let's dive back into Medgar's story. Medgar was prolific in the civil rights movement in Mississippi. So he was involved in a lot of different aspects of it, and a lot of those came through his work with the NAACP, and that's what we're going to get into today. So in 1954, he became the field secretary for the state of Mississippi for the NAACP, and he was incredibly active, energetic. We talked last week about how in college he was doing 30 different things and was very active. Right. Well, that same energy continued with him through the rest of his life. And it's pretty incredible how much he was able to pack into 24 hours each day. So he was, we don't even have time to cover it all, but we previously, we did an episode on the Biloxi weigh-in and he was involved with that. Okay. He was also involved in labor organizing and getting unions to be involved in the civil rights struggle. And we did an episode on labor unions uh, that kind of t- touches on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. The biographer Michael Vincent Williams says, Evers' reach encompassed every facet of the civil rights struggle. His presence was felt in voter registration drives, economic boycotts, sit-ins, investigative reporting, and other direct action tactics. So what follows? is a partial summary. He was strategic in how he approached the struggle. So one tool of oppression in those days was economic warfare. And what that was, was white employers and white people were the employers. They pretty much owned all the businesses. And so white people would use that economic power to silence black voices and black empowerment. So if a black person basically did anything to stand up and seek equal treatment, whether that be voting or seeking to vote, seeking to register others to vote, labor organizing, anything like that, 
usually the first tool of suppressing that kind of activity was that they would be fired. And so most of the voices in the civil rights struggle that were able to actually make an impact were those that had some level of economic independence, because otherwise the threat of economic boycotts and being fired was just too much. And so Medgar saw that, and his response to that threat of white boycotts of black activism Mm -hmm. was to create an alliance with the Tri-State Bank, a black-owned banking institution that was based up in Memphis. And so he worked with them to partner with the NAACP, and they offered serious loans to black Mississippians in order basically bail out loans so that they weren't relying on the white banking system. So that seems like a small thing. But in the reality of the struggle, it was a really strategic move because it actually gave a lifeline to ordinary people to say, you can stand up. You don't need to rely on these white banks that are going to call in your loans and you're going to lose your house if you join with us and like stand up and join the struggle. He also sought to register black people to vote. And you can see how these kind of this builds on the last one that once people had a little bit more leeway, he was able to register people to vote. He lamented how the law was used to prevent those kinds of efforts. And he said of one of the counties in Mississippi, Jones County, quote, Negro voters at one time, even the first of this year, constituted 35% of the total registered voters in the county, some 1,300 or more. However, in the early part of this year, A new registration was called by the county, and every Negro on the books, and supposedly whites too, had to re-register under the new amendment. And with the qualifications being so rigid, only 65 Negroes have re-qualified to vote. Wow. So from 1,300 down to 65. And this was a common thing that was practiced throughout the state of Mississippi, and we've done an episode on voting and how the obstacles and barriers to voting just dramatically reduced the percentage of black people who were able to vote in the South, but also importantly, reduced the percentage of poor people in general that could vote because poll taxes were instituted by white people because they hurt black people because they, black people in general had less disposable income, but it also hurt poor people across the board. And so these measures that were used as a tool of white supremacy were also just generally cruel to everyone who had vulnerability within society. Mm. And Medgar helped to push back against that and champion democracy. And that's an important note. It's just black people in general, historically, have been those who have championed democracy. So just to give one kind of additional example on the topic of voter suppression, in 1955, there was a Reverend Lee, Reverend G.W. Lee, who registered to vote despite threats and began to encourage other people to register to vote too. The sheriff refused to take his poll tax and so prevented him from voting, but he actually threatened federal intervention, a lawsuit, and ultimately did win his right to vote. He began to encourage others to do the same to the backdrop of a bunch of threats of violence. And one day in 1955, a white convertible pulled up beside his car and shot him with a shotgun. Local authorities tried to cover up the murder and claimed that the lead that was found in Reverend Lee's jaw was from tooth fillings, even though the dentists 
who were in the town, the black dentists all decried that as ludicrous because they didn't use, nobody would use lead for tooth fillings because right. it was known to be toxic. And it was just an, an obvious fabrication, but it was a way to deny that it had been a racial murder. But at the same time, the authorities also blocked all outgoing long distance calls from the black residents in the entire town because they wanted to prevent the story from spreading. So Medgar found out about the story and helped raise a thousand dollar reward for information leading to justice. And he also began at that point to carry a gun with him in his car because he knew that he was equally likely to be under the threat of that same kind of violence. And I think it's important too to remember that this is one city in one state in the country that we're covering right now, but this was like not like an anomaly. It's not like, oh, wow, this is crazy that the cops were trying to cover this up and the authorities were doing whatever. And there was all this strategic just oppression. Mm -hmm. It's important to remember that like, that was happening everywhere. It was all systemic. The time. It was systemic. It, it wasn't yeah. just one thing. It's just, I know we can, we talk about these stories a lot and it can seem like, oh, wow, this is like, it's just crazy that this was happening. And it's like, I can understand that feeling. It is crazy. But at the same time, it was happening everywhere and it was like super normal. Mm -hmm. And it was yeah. terrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good word. Crazy, but normal somehow. Yep. And Edgar, in the face of it, remained resolute and had an incredible bravery because he knew that this was, I mean, he was realistic about the fear and took action, bought a gun. He also started to train his family in these, because he'd been in the military, he was a military vet, and started to train his family in these drills of how to take defensive measures if wow. he and if they or if their home was attacked. So, I mean, just imagine you're trying to make the world a better place and simultaneously teaching your children, like, how to react if there's somebody's firing on your home. They also had a couch in the front window of their home that they wouldn't sit in. It said in his biography that after dark, they would not sit in this front couch because of the threat of somebody firing or throwing a brick through the window. Wow. I, I mean, it's like, you, I can't imagine that. I've never once even thought about anything remotely close to that. Yeah. He, when he pulled up to the home, he instructed his children to always exit through the passenger side. They would never exit on the driver's side because he knew that as the driver, his side was most likely to be fired on. And also because there was a vacant lot on that side of the home that would give cover, like positions that somebody could have cover if they wanted to assassinate him. Mm. And so he had his family always exit on the other side. Wow. And just to have to like think through those kinds of daily realities, like every day, every time your child exits your car, it stands as this reminder that daddy is under threat because he's helping people vote, helping people have a voice. Yeah. So Evers played a huge role also in the Emmett Till investigation. And I didn't even realize this, but just, just goes to show further how prolific he was and how many parts of the civil rights struggle he had a hand in. Yeah. He was the primary investigator that 
basically dug up the information about the Emmett Till lynching. And he convinced, which I did not know this, he convinced Mamie to have an open casket funeral, which he played a part in that. And oh my gosh, the shame, the embarrassment, that's what it took to embarrass the nation. Mm -hmm. Which we haven't done an episode on Emmett Till. So just to say for context that that open casket funeral was a pivotal moment that kind of changed the trajectory of history. Yep. And it, because of the way, well, because the, the press reporting on it, it was just like so public and there's like this shock factor and it kind of shamed America into changing. So Medgar Evers convincing Mammy to have that open casket funeral was a super important piece of the civil rights struggle. Yeah. Howard Spence said he was the NAACP field representative who said, had it not been for Medgar Evers asking me to investigate, the till lynching would have just been another case that's been forgotten. And just to give you some context or just like this concept of time and how long ago things were, Carolyn Bryant, who is Emma Till's accuser, she's still alive. Mm-hmm. As is Merle, as we said in the last episode. She is still alive. She's a grandma, but she's alive. And no one ever went to jail for Emmett's murder. Mm -hmm. Yep. Not ancient history. Not at all. It's not even really history at that point. It's just stories of things that have happened. Yeah. Recently. So within the NAACP in that time period, there was a couple different internal factions that were pulling different directions. Some that wanted to work through existing institutions and use the law to slowly change the scene of the civil rights struggle in America, and others that wanted to really press into the youth movements that were using nonviolent protest and civil disobedience to try to change the scene. And Medgar kind of had a foot in both camps. I think he saw the value of working through legal action. And I mean, we saw that we mentioned before how he tried to become the test case for the Mississippi state to desegregate the school. And he also had a big part to play in a lot of the youth movements that were trying to, I mean, the blocks he weighed in, for example, and some of the others we'll, we'll talk about in more depth. And in that position, kind of having a foot in both camp, he was also somewhat of a unifying figure and helped to hold the struggle in Mississippi together and to kind of keep it from fracturing. But that job of being that unifying figure was costly to him because he kind of got flack from both sides, both sides trying to press him to kind of take their views. So he was often at odds with the national NAACP office. And they also, part of it was that they viewed Mississippi as a straggler rather than a bellwether in the civil rights struggle. So they wanted to focus more of the resources and energy on other states where they thought, you know, if we get some of these other maybe more amiable southern states to change, then Mississippi will eventually follow. Yeah. But Evers, he was all in on Mississippi and he continually fought to move more resources and energy to that state. He said of that zeal for Mississippi at one point, he said, I'll be damned if I let the white men lick me. There's something out here that I've got to do for my kids and I'm not going to stop until I've done it. I think I he, love that. 
he saw this legacy trailing behind him and he's like, I am fighting for my kids and for them to have a future here. Yes. Evers loved Martin Luther King and wanted to form a closer relationship with him. They wrote letters and exchanges and Edgar was influenced by MLK's nonviolent resistance. In an interview with Francis Mitchell from Ebony Magazine, Evers said of the calls for violent revolution to achieve black equality, quote, It didn't take much reading of the Bible, though, to convince me that two wrongs would not make the situation any different, and that I couldn't hit the white man and at the same time hope to convert him. Which I think is powerful that still he maintained that desire to win over and convert white people to see the humanity of black people and to, I mean, if you destroy an enemy, then you have one less enemy. But if you convert an enemy, then it, it's like a two person swing that you, it, by winning over white people to see the humanity of black people ever's made, I think, an even bigger impact than he could if, if he had a more cynical take. I think that black people are not a monolith. And I think it took all types of resistance in this fight. And so it's really powerful that people like Medgar Evers and Martin Luther King and others, they resisted through peaceful nonviolence. But then it's also powerful that people took up arms and fought back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't, I don't invalidate either. Mm-hmm. It took just as much of Martin as it took Martin Luther King, as it took the Black Panther Party, as it took Nat Turner, as it took Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, and W.E.B. It, that's the beauty of Blackness, is that different Black people had, have different convictions. And I think it's taking a little bit of all of us and what we bring to the table and how we approach it. Because in this day and age, some black people would think that representation is important. And there are a lot of black people who think deconstructing and just and segregating, which I can respect and understand that because we've tried integration. Um, And there's people that think that we should be just unapologetic in the spaces that we are in, regardless of where we are. And build our own, you know, create our own tables. And I think it takes all of it. Mm -hmm. I think it takes those who are representation. And then it takes those who are unapologetic and those who are resistant to the status quo. And I think that's the beauty of blackness. That's the power of blackness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really... That's really well said. I I was just going to say that I think that the system that was built in the country required it to be fought. I mean, we still requires it to be fought by so many different angles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because there were times where, I mean, if you didn't do anything, you were going to literally die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't even a question. It wasn't like, oh, I might die. It was no, you're going to die. Right. Like you're going to get killed, not die. Like you're going to get murdered. And then in other cases, there's like having to require a new voting lease or whatever the, you know, they had to redo all their voting requirements. And it's like they fought people in so many different ways that I don't think one side could have taken us to 
where we are today if it wasn't mm-hmm. attacked by all these different angles. And yeah. even like an example, when we think about Black Panther, the movie, and the Killmonger, and I think Killmonger is one category and or one aspect, and a lot of his was trauma-induced because he lost his father. But then there was his father who was living in the projects. He was a prince living in the pro- an African prince, Wakandan prince, living in the projects, helping his people. And then there was T'Challa. And I mean, each one of them. And there was T'Chaka, the dad, T'Challa's father. Every single one. And then there's Suri, his sister. Everybody brought different things to the table. And I just envision it as chiseling a rock, like a big boulder. If one person is chiseling, it's going to take a lot longer. And it's going to be a way heavier burden than everybody getting a, a pickaxe or whatever and chiseling. At, in different places together mm-hmm. and meeting in the center. And so some people, there are wars within in the black community or there's dis, big disagreements. And I think that as African-American, and I'm, this, this is me speaking to my black sisters and brothers, like we do a, a big disservice when we try to contextualize oppression and make it subjective to our time in that some people will, will make distinctions between people who were in the house enslaved and people who were in the field because the people in the house were mostly women getting raped and the people in the fields, they were getting raped. They were getting beat. There's another element of white supremacy that promotes division to suggest that these black people experience things a lot lighter than these black people. And when we're all black people, because I'll hear, you'll hear black people say, well, I, I would have never done X, Y, Z. Yes, you would have. Because you would have been enslaved. And yes, we do have so many figures of people who resisted in like Harriet Tubman. She risked her life. There there are those black people who took over the ship and turned it around or jumped to their deaths. I feel like that's heroic in a sense to jump to your death and decide that you're going to drown. Like Killmonger said, bury me with the ancestors who jumped off the ships. But, you know, there's also dignity for those who toiled. For those who just survived, survived, mm-hmm. who, who chose to love the family that was forged. Like a lot of times they were loving other people's children because their children had been taken away. And so they would just forge a community. A mother, a black woman would be a mother to everybody else's kids because her kids were taken. There's a beauty in those people who just chose to or who had no choice but to survive. And when we make those type of distinctions, unless they're an, unless it's rooted in anti-blackness, because that's a whole nother thing. Just because someone chose to survive doesn't mean that they're anti-black because people could be thriving. You know, we see this in our time now where there's people who, who have affluence and they have influence and, and they use their platforms for anti-blackness. I, I'm not talking about those folks. I'm talking about people who just did what they felt they had to do, did what they felt the Lord compelled them to do or their convictions compelled them to do, you know, considered their circumstances or risked it all. All of them, there are ancestors, there are elders, and they get all of their stories are so important. And everyone, to me, all of them are heroes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking just, well, first of all, that's, so good. And I think is also just a helpful perspective to, to see that the strivings of other people, even if they're different from ours, 
complement in this beautiful tapestry that that makes more effective change than just what one any one person is doing. And Medgar Evers, that was kind of relevant to this story because he yeah. was very much of that perspective and kind of firing on all fronts. And I think even of the Montgomery bus boycott, how the effectiveness of the grassroots movement yeah. was only able to accomplish the change that it did because there simultaneously was the legal movement and the, these various court cases that also took advantage of the public eye of the news media, of the international media on the boycott in order to basically shame judges into doing the right thing. Yeah. And you see this multifacetedness of Medgar because he says he's not going to let the white man lick him. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, he has the conviction to not match violence with violence. So there's like this duplicity. There's this thing Mm -hmm. going on inside of him where he has to deal with their white supremacy and hate. And he matches it sometimes with his own anger. His anger and his righteous indignation drives him to do what he does because he's Mm -hmm. not going to let the white man lick him. But then his moral conviction kicks in and it's like, I'm going to try to win these win these sap suckers over because that's the only way we're going to get this done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, it's powerful. He believed in nonviolence, but also. But again, at the Listen, same time, for self-defense, he, okay. there's like complexity exactly. to it. So getting back into kind of his story, yeah. in 1959, Evers issued a statement to the press that was criticizing a Mississippi court for an unjust punishment of an innocent black man. And for that, for criticizing the court's decision in the press, and this just blows my mind that this happened, the court then charged Evers for issuing a statement in the press, criticizing the court. They charged Evers with contempt of court and sent him to jail for 30 days. Hmm. I mean, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, this is like so in the face of both of those, it's hard to believe that this actually happened. And Evers could have reduced the sentence by apologizing to the judge. The judge basically bribed him to apologize by just explicitly saying he would reduce the sentence if he did. Gross. But Evers was so indignant about the violation of his constitutional rights that he refused to apologize and instead continued to cry out against the Mississippi legal system and compared it to the Iron Curtain. Oof. Megger was like, hell no. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Gross. That What a gross judge. Yeah. So back in 1942, the state of Mississippi had passed a law along these lines, they had passed this law that is equally shocking. Mississippi Code 2339 said, and I'll read it, quote, any person, firm, or corporation who shall be guilty of printing, publishing, or circulating printed, typewritten, or written matter urging or presenting for public acceptance or general information, arguments or suggestions, they like a lot of words, Arguments or suggestions in favor of social equality or of intermarriage between whites and Negroes shall be guilty of a misdemeanor and subject to a fine not exceeding $500, which in the money of that day was worth the equivalent of $9,500 today, or imprisonment not exceeding six months or both the fine and imprisonment. So literally $10,000 fine, six months in prison, if you printed anything that I mean, according to the words of the statute, that is putting forth for general acceptance 
suggestions in favor of social equality. That was Ooh. a law in the United States of America. Do you know when it wasn't I, a law anymore? So it was made law in 1942 and then was overturned by the Supreme Court. So this law was overturned by the Supreme Court, but bef- even after the Supreme Court invalidated it, this judge still used it against Medgar Evers to lock him up for these 30 days. Okay. So, and it was, it was already invalid at that point. Wow. So just a corrupt system and a system that just didn't hold itself accountable to actually even follow the laws. States, rats. I'm sorry. We're mm-hmm. not going to have a lot of more <laughs> Mississippi fans after this. <laughs> yeah. Ciao. This episode. So in all this brought Megger to just a really low point, which is easy to see how that would happen. And just feeling hopeless, feeling like there is no legal recourse. Like even just, they're just going to throw out your constitutional rights, even though the Supreme Court has invalidated the legal logic to it. It's like, at that point, what do you even appeal to? Yeah. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So he, at a banquet, at a NAACP Freedom Fund banquet in 1961, he broke down and dis- despite his feelings that men should not show their emotions, like he said at other points that he felt like there was, which I don't think that this is true, but he felt like men should avoid showing emotions. It's those boomers. Yeah, it was a common thought in that day. In that day. Yeah. And, but he kind of broke down and started crying. And then one of the older women in the audience cried out, that's all right, son. We all feel the same way. Yes, indeed. There's just this shared grief. And in this way that, I mean, is it's surprising that we don't see this pattern and realize that sharing emotions actually is a good thing because it's so common in history that when somebody shares their emotions, it does not invalidate them, but actually brings people in and they relate. And other people, when they see that a leader is, feels the burdens of leadership and feels like the burden of mourning with the many evils in society, it just makes us that more attracted to those who we see suffering alongside us. So I think it just grew his profile and popularity. It humanized him too, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So during and throughout the 1960s, the years that followed, Evers' views shifted more and more towards direct action. I think because of that, just becoming cynical about the and courts. Weary, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So on March 27th, 1961, 
There were nine students that were arrested in a Jackson area library sit-in. So listeners are probably familiar with the sit-ins that happened in restaurants to desegregate restaurants, but there were also sit-ins at libraries because libraries were also segregated facilities, even though black tax dollars were paying for the libraries. They were segregated and wouldn't allow black people to use them. Well, that was the case for most things, right? Yep. Weren't they using black and brown money for buses, roads, mm-hmm. all that stuff? Yeah. 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 I mean, black tax dollars fed into the you know Department of Transportation budget that would just leave dirt roads in the black community while it repaved roads in the white community. And yeah, all, yep. all throughout the system, there was this kind of misuse of funds. And I mean, if you listen to our redlining episode, we talk about that more and also how black people were disproportionately charged higher property tax rates, sometimes as much as nine times the property tax rate of white communities, mm-hmm. while at the same time, the government underfunded projects in the black community. But yeah, so these students were arrested and the following day, hundreds of their fellow students from Jackson State College gathered to protest and the police used violence, including clubs, tear gas and German dogs to block and prevent the march. And then all of this was to the backdrop of at the same time, there was the Centennial Civil War Celebration Parade where 3,000 white volunteers dressed in Confederate uniforms fired cannons and marched six miles to Southern war songs. So, I mean, what a contrast. That is happening at the same time that the police are using tear gas clubs and German dogs to attack hundreds of students who are marching in protest of their fellows who were arrested for sitting in a segregated library. You don't get much more gross than that. Yeah, it's like tone deaf is like not even a right. Mm -hmm. And they even like beat women and children like. Mm -hmm. Yep. The next day, the police again used billy clubs, police dogs and tear gas to beat up the growing crowds. The crowds continue to swell. New York Times came and reported on it, as did other publications. And they named Evers as one of those who was hit and quoted him describing like you said, Katina, that women and children were among those who were beaten unmercifully. Yeah. So another example of a grassroots movement that Evers was deeply involved with, there was a Capitol Street boycott, an economic boycott of a bunch of white businesses that were segregated on Capitol Street. And Evers was a champion of the youth within the NAACP and provided outlets then for their activism. And so this boycott of Capitol Street They got word out and it was, they said, 80% effective at preventing black patronage of the hundred or so white owned businesses on that street. And they demanded four things, which these were not crazy demands. They were demanding the use of honorary titles. So rather than being called like demeaning names, being called Mr. and Mrs. They demanded first come first serve treatment quality and employment, and an end to segregation in dressing water fountains and seating. And so that was the demands of the boycott. And local officials tried to head off the boycott by making mass assembly in the the city of Jackson illegal. So they basically just said, no one can gather throughout the entire city. We're just going to issue an oppressive ordinance for all of our people so that we can kind of in this supposedly 
not racist way, even though it really is. Yeah. Right. Prevent this boycott. And so Evers, once again, kind of you see his strategic plotting here. He got around that because they would use gatherings as a way to get out word about the boycott. Yeah. And so Evers got around that by printing T-shirts about the boycott and giving them to children because he knew that the children could, wouldn't and couldn't be arrested for it. So he just gave them to children who then walk up and down Capitol Street and other streets in the black community to be seen and get the word out wow. about the boycott. Genius. And it worked, yeah. The word got out and the kids didn't get arrested or anything. So at the same time, there was a conference in town and Evers and the fellow activists who were working with him on this boycott were worried that all these teachers who were at this teacher's conference would visit Capitol Street and because it was this big annual influx of people, it could kind of hide the effectiveness of the boycott, that all the businesses would still have okay sales and be less likely to bend. And so Edgar's wife, Murley, got creative and she started spreading rumors about teachers getting beat up on Capitol Street and it kind of scared them away so that the teachers did not go to the boycott and it became pretty effective. The mayor of Jackson was furious about this boycott and started just continually going on the air and with radio, television, and just railing against this grassroots activism and talking about how it was going to destroy the local economy and it's bad for everyone. And these outside agitators, it was a big line that they would say that it was outside agitators because they saw the NAACP as this foreign organization or from foreign outside of Mississippi are coming in trying to ruin our communities. And this is the common like thing that would be said. Our Negroes are happy. They are. They don't cause no trouble. They love it here. They love what we have set up. It's these outsiders that come in. I mean, you see this in interviews during the civil rights movement, like mm -hmm. they go to white to the white communities and you see little white women saying this kind of stuff over and over again. And just that willful white ignorance, mm -hmm. they have to latch on to something completely ludicrous and they will hold on to it for dear life because it has to make sense in the realm of white supremacy. Which is just crazy when the white community was simultaneously terrorizing the black people in their state into silence and then arguing that they're happy, happy. and content. Mm-hmm. Just. Well, if you were going to lynch my family member, wouldn't I have to pretend to be happy? Mm-hmm. I mean, knows. just crazy. Happy mm -hmm. under duress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> happy literally with a gun to your head. Right. So Evers was upset, reasonably, that all this television airtime was being given to the mayor to just kind of spew racist views and skew the story of what the boycott was about and what they were trying to accomplish. And so he pressured the, tel the local television station to give him airtime for a response. And then simultaneously, the television station was being investigated because they didn't let many black voices, if any, onto their program. Right. This is kind of just a little bit crazy and just shows the world how different the world was back then. Evers had a 17 minute TV segment then where he was able to give a response and that made him like a household name. Yeah. Which 
How different of a world is that, that a black person having 17 minutes of airtime is a big enough deal that he becomes a national figure? <laughs> because that's not something they used to seeing. Because of, yeah, how rare of a thing it was to yep. hear a black voice on television. But that was the world then. 17 minutes of airtime for a black person was so shocking that it made him like a national figure. And in that time, he brilliantly argued his case. He quoted Kennedy just because he knew that the white people would want a white voice to listen to. So he, he quoted Kennedy to sidestep some of the kind of racist views that he knew he was going to be up against and used Kennedy's voice to kind of make his case for him. And he argued that, that democracy in Mississippi was important for democracy everywhere and kind of linked to those things. And his speech was well received generally, both by the black community and by white moderates. But it didn't lead to immediate change because most of the white moderates who maybe didn't like the way things were being handled in Mississippi, they were also at the same time afraid of the same white violence that the black community was living in fear of and didn't want to kind of step in front of all that violence that to a much lesser degree, but still sometimes, I mean, there were white people who were killed because they fought for civil rights also. Yep. So the threats of violence after that interview very quickly escalated and ramped up. Yeah. And just to kind of place it in the timeline here, this was a couple weeks before Medgar Evers was assassinated. Mm. So just that television interview and that kind of launching of Medgar into the public spotlight also, I think, immediately raised the level of threats and the risk to his life. So Fred Clark Sr., he described it and he said, I would not ride with Megger into Jackson because I just knew they were going to get him because everybody else around him got shot. And I just knew he had to be on the list. Wasn't nobody else in the United States doing what he was doing. And in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And he went on, he doesn't quote Medgar here, but he went on to just describe how when he asked Medgar Evers if he was afraid to drive around Jackson and the possibility that he could be shot, like, how do you cope with that fear? And Medgar Evers responded with a bunch of words about God and faith. Hmm. That's what he says. So Megger, through his faith that there was some kind of bigger story, was able to endure in the face of that constant risk. And just imagine the, the anxiety and the trauma of living, knowing that like every car, Medgar uh, described this how, at one point about how every car that would come up to him and pass him, there's just this constant little part of his mind that would flicker to this possibility of that they could try to kill him. Yeah. Uh, and police were incredibly negligent yeah. in, in final days. Uh, nine days after the speech, a firebomb was thrown in Medgar's yard and the police just ruled that it was a prank and took no action, no serious action. Instead, what the police did do was arrest Medgar Evers three days later because he was joining the protests or joining the boycott on Capitol Street. So they, they arrested him for holding up a sign, but did nothing when his yard was firebombed. They used electric cattle prods 
to arrest him, mm. along with the NAACP president, Roy Wilkins. Just, I mean, there's so many things I just like have to pause on because it's just shocking, but it, like cattle prods. Yeah. Like that is so unnecessary. The two, these two leaders in the NAACP, literally like the state leader and the national leader of the NAACP are just peacefully walking around with signs and they use cattle prods to terrorize them. And they stood on laws that had already been overturned mm-hmm. by the Supreme Court. I mean, just doing whatever they wanted to do. Yep. They were charged with obstructing trade under a statute that had been invalidated already. And while that's going on, white business owners are calling in black workers who participated in the boycott and firing them. And then the white control banks were telling the fired workers that they had 24 hours to pay their mortgages in full or else lose their homes. So it's just escalating. Yeah. And we talked about this in the redlining episode that a lot of black people were victims of shady mortgages. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That they didn't have the protection of the law and so many lost their homes because of things like this, where the banks would just kind of do whatever they wanted and take their homes if they didn't comply with the evil system. Yeah. So on June 10th, Dr. Felix Dunn notified Evers that a white lawyer whom he trusted had disclosed to him that there was a, an active plan to kill Megar Evers. Dunn warned that he should be careful and place bodyguards around his house. But then Evers met with uh, Gloucester Current and other local leaders in the movement to discuss these threats. But they were reticent to commit the funding to create like a 24-7 bodyguard patrol because everyone was under threat. Yeah. Which to some degree, that was a reality. Everyone was under threat. So how can you possibly pay to give everyone bodyguards, but also Medgravers was also uh, uh, run down with a car in this same two-week period. Good grief. There was a car that chased him down and tried to hit him while he was leaving one of the offices. So, I mean, it was definitely this period of escalated threat. Uh, Hmm. And Medgar was just broken to the point of tears by them not being willing or able to commit this bodyguard protection. But then he also said, to Murley when he got home. He said, but that's okay because Murley, I don't want anybody to do that anyway because I don't want anybody else to get hurt. When my time comes, it comes. I don't care how many people are around me to protect me. It will not matter. Wow. Which I mean, the way I hear that is just like, it's a way, it's true that he feels that way, but also it's through this like, it's like a way of trying to process and deal with knowing that his life was so under threat. It's just, you see the pain and the fear, but also like this bravery and boldness at the same time, this unwillingness to give up and give in. That, that next morning, Medgar's last words to Murley before he left the house, he said, I'm so tired. I can't go on, but I can't stop. And that very day, the day that would be his last day on earth, in this kind of final stroke of kindness of God's providence, Evers did get to witness one final breakthrough in the fight for equality. And that was that President Kennedy, who had been kind of quietly supportive of the civil rights movement, but not really willing to take a real stand, he finally took a real stand. Mm. And Kennedy, in his speech that evening, this is just an excerpt of it, but if 
I mean, it's worth looking up the whole speech. Kennedy said, today we are committed to a worldwide struggle to promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. And when Americans are sent to Vietnam or West Berlin, we do not ask for whites only. It ought to be possible, therefore, for American students of any color to attend any public institution they select without having to be backed up by troops. It ought to be possible for American consumers of any color to receive equal services in places of public accommodation, such as hotels and restaurants and theaters and retail stores, without being forced to resort to demonstrations in the street. And it ought to be possible for American citizens of any color to register and to vote in a free election without interference or fear of reprisal. It ought to be possible, in short, for every American to enjoy the privileges of being American without regard to his race or his color. In short, every American ought to have the right to be treated as he would wish to be treated, as one would wish for his children to be treated. But this is not the case. Hmm. So, I mean, this was a pivotal moment where Kennedy really put down the stake that would become the Civil Rights Act and really committed to that political fight. And Evers found courage in this as he prepared to testify. He was going to testify, I think, the next day before Congress. And that night, he was just celebrating in his heart and got to have that that moment of hope rekindled in his heart that maybe something nationally is actually going to change. And by extension, that Mississippi would be forced to change. Mm. But that same night, as he got home and was ready to go inside and just hug and celebrate with Murley, this major victory, he parked his car and pulled out a box full of t-shirts that read, Jim Crow must go. And he began to walk inside and there was a ring of gunfire. And he was shot with a rifle and was killed at the age of 37. Shot in the back. Yeah. And Murley was pregnant. And just after all of that, Stress and, I mean, just that horrific, just the grief she miscarried within a month. I can imagine losing your husband and then a month later going through that alone. Yeah. With a bunch of little babies, little kids on top of that. Home will never be home because daddy was shot in the back in the front yard. His son talked in one of the excerpts I read, I'm not going to read it here, but talked about how his blood still stains the driveway. I mean, it's yeah, the, a continual reminder of that trauma of losing him. Yeah. Various international newspapers reported on the murder, further tarnishing America's international reputation relating to racism and segregation, which we've talked before about how that actually was necessary and important for America's reputation to suffer because that was... Like a lot in the higher halls of government, that was like the real reason why people were willing to get on board with the Civil Rights Act. It was because in this bigger global war against communism, they believed that the look was bad, that American racism was hurting the effort to promote democracy internationally. And so that the shaming of America actually was part of what moved a lot of individual people who held power, these gatekeepers of power, to be willing to actually take a stand and make a change. Yeah. Mississippi State Senator 
Henry J. Kirksey believed that the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, a commission of the state of Mississippi itself, so a part of the state of Mississippi's government, was likely behind the murder. Wow. The police, prior to that night, the police routinely followed Medgar Evers' home. It was typically, it was two FBI cars and one state of Mississippi car. So three squad cars from two different branches of the police followed Evers' home, typically. And that night, there was no detail. So there was speculation within the community that something had been arranged, that maybe there were bribes or maybe some kind of conspiracy. I don't think that that's been, like, flushed out. There's not evidence. But the, the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission did help to get Byron De La Beckwith off and helped with his legal case. So at the very least, they were trying to absolve him of the murder, whether or not they actually helped with it. So various ministers joined with marches following Evers' murder and protested the racial violence of his assassination. And women and children joined in with the marches. And there were a hundred state police officers who came and met them with clubs. The New York Times wrote that one woman was smashed in the face with a club of an officer. There were 150 arrests on the first day of protests following Medgar's assassination. And the protests tripled in size the following day until, as the New York Times described, they were clubbed into submission, with specifically mentioned in the article six men being strangled with billy clubs. More than 4,000 people attended Medgar's funeral the city of Jackson forbade the funeral, the first location they didn't allow. And then finally, they allowed a procession, but only on condition that there be no singing. <laughs> they forbade singing. And the black people who attended reported or told that the police were lined up along the sides of the street. And that even as they walked by Ever's body, the police were shouting, move, 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 just rushing them to move along, just totally irreverent. After the funeral, the mourners marched on the Capitol where police beat them and fired live rounds over their heads. Lord. So Kennedy had already taken a stand for the civil rights movement, and he continued to, and I think was even strengthened in his resolve um, after Evers was assassinated. He invited Medgar Evers' family to the signing of a draft copy of the Civil Rights Bill. And he signed it in front of them and told them that Evers' death would make the bill possible. Just because of the backlash, because of the, all the international press, because of the kind of public shaming of the cruelty in Mississippi, that there would be now the political will to get the bill through the Congress. Yeah. The FBI gathered extensive evidence showing that Byron De La Beckwith was the murderer. But despite all this evidence, despite just definitive proof, I and mean, they had fingerprints on the gun, they had records of him purchasing the gun, the testimony of the gun story. Feels like you're about to say there was an all-white jury. And there was an all-white jury. Two all-white juries both refused to convict him. Of course. So for 20-some-odd years, he just walked free as a free man. Yep. He did... Down the road in 1993, he was finally convicted for it. Finally. In 1993. But that was after, I mean, after more than 20 years of of freedom. And there is a documentary called Southern Justice. I think it's from HBO. 
of Murley fighting for justice for Medgar to get De La Beckworth because he was bold. I watched it. I mean, he was bold and brazen about he describes in detail how he shot Medgar. I mean, and how he basically sat in wait. And I mean, it was just I mean, just the nerve mm-hmm. he would do in the press mm-hmm. and nothing would be done. Yeah. And when he finally was convicted, when he finally, Merle said, uh, Medgar, she, I remember she was like, I think she was standing outside and she said something like, I've gone the last mile of the way. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, we finally did it. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine her husband dies in the 60s and it's in this the, the 90s before she sees justice? Mm-hmm. I mean, just to think like in the 80s. America was still such a place that he was walking free and there was still no action. Mm. That was a state sanctioned murder. Mm -hmm. And, (sighs) and I didn't mention this before, but when, when Byron De La Beckwith initially got off, when the jury was like a hung jury, so they didn't convict him. But the reason why he was allowed to be tried again later was because the jurors couldn't come to a unanimous decision. And when he got off initially, he like went home to a hero's welcome. Yeah. Like a crowd, Gross. a big crowd gathered to celebrate his Yay. getting off. Yeah. Gross. Medgar Evers knew that his service as the field secretary for the NAACP, he knew that all this activism that he was involved with would be a risk to himself. And he was, he never shied away from that. He was always realistic about that. And he talked about how he was fighting not for himself, but for this reality of creating a different kind of future for his kids. And so even though they killed him, they did not kill his dream or his ambition to, to change the world. And he did change the world. Mississippi had a long history of killing black people. Yeah. But despite that risk, he said, Medgar said in a speech in 1958, that neither he nor black people as a collective could afford to cease to press forward relentlessly until every vestige of discrimination and segregation in America becomes annihilated. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 